0: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: This episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is a wonderful community of podcasts, historical or otherwise, that are quite like When Diplomacy Fails, in that you will listen to them, and you will finish listening to them, and you will feel as though you have been bettered in your life. Within the Agora Podcast Network are tons of podcasts quite similar to When Diplomacy Fails. Great names such as The History of England or American Biography by my good friend and loyal listener Tom Daly. Or, in fact, if you were to be a very good Agora Podcast listener and listen to the podcast of the month, then you would also find Lands of Leviathan, a different kind of take on modern day politics and fantastical theories such as the zombie apocalypse or how exactly the church and state would be separated in a kind of game of thrones-esque situation it's one of those things that needs to be heard to be believed so if you're interested check out lands of leviathan thanks for listening guys and i hope you enjoy this latest installment of the second anglo-dutch war <music> Welcome to episode 9! In the last episode we built up to the war, covering the final actions of the Dutch and British as the outbreak of the conflict drew ever closer. In this episode we examine its opening year, it was one of mixed blessings for both sides. Though Johan de Witt would not get the victory that he wanted, neither would the British. In the case of both powers, financial and domestic problems would flare up before the end of the year, demonstrating that the war had hardly come at the best of times for either and that it would not be either a one-sided or a rapid, easy campaign. Let's investigate its events. I will now take you to the year
0: 1665.
1: The only traditions of the Royal Navy are rum, sodomy and the lash. Winston Churchill Finally, after months of beating around the bush, war between Britain and the Netherlands had erupted at last. To many the war meant great opportunities, to others it was a shame that British foreign policy was unable to make friends in Europe and had merely alienated those potential friends. As we've learned by now though, those in Charles II's court that preached caution and peace were in the minority. Those in favour, those that had the King's ear, were firmly for war. Such groups included those in renowned merchant ventures, which named as their benefactors the House of Stuart. As we've watched the march towards war develop, though, a further pillar of British society made itself known to us as well. These were the Anglican Royalists, a community of vengeful, idealistic, ambitious and cunning individuals, determined to get what they saw as their country's right and their religious persuasion's necessity. They believed they spoke for the country's real interests, just as much as their religious persuasions enabled them to look at the Dutch and see what they wanted to see in this old commercial rival. The Dutch, it said, were devoid of honour. They cared only for money, and had as their primary aim the domination of the world, a universal monarchy through coin. In order to stop the Dutch, Anglican royalists committed their nation to war. The fact that the previous war against the same enemy had been so successful that the country was in need of some successes, and that the economic benefits which could be accrued from knocking the Dutch off their perch had the potential to be magnificent, played additional roles of persuasion. Charles in his turn had sought diplomatic alliances at first, such as those with Sweden and Denmark which eventually fell through, to isolate the Dutch and gain leverage that he needed to get a diplomatic victory. When this strategy failed, since he was outmanoeuvred by Johann de Witt in The Hague, and by Louis XIV in Paris, Charles allowed himself to be persuaded that the Dutch would not fight, and so he ratcheted up the tensions, safe in the knowledge that great rewards could be gained from continued pressure exerted during an undeclared war. Charles had also allowed himself to be lulled into the belief that the Dutch defensive alliance with France would never produce fruit and that Britain would never have to face a combined Franco-Dutch bloc in wartime. In Charles's defence, at least in this latter case, his French cousin had given him good cause to believe in the past that the Franco-Dutch partnership regularly blew from hot to cold, and that no guarantees existed for a French intervention. Charles' convenient contact in the depths of the French court, his sister Henrietta, who was married to Louis's brother and enjoyed a close, some would say intimate, relationship with the French king, sent him the following revealing note on the outbreak of war with the Dutch. I beg of you to consider if some secret treaty could not be arranged, by which you could make sure of this, French neutrality, by giving a pledge that you would help in the business he will soon have in Flanders. Think this over well, I beg you, but never let anyone know that I was the first to mention it to you. The massively underrated term used by Henrietta here, the business, referred to Louis's plan to invade the Spanish Netherlands in the name of his Spanish wife. What Louis proposed, though of course it cannot be proved that Louis himself thought of the proposal, was that if his cousin would stand by him against world opinion in the future, Louis would perhaps refrain from standing by the Dutch now. It was a monumental proposal, and in hindsight can be seen as a kind of precursor to what Louis and Charles would do together against the Dutch and the rest of Europe, but for now Charles had nothing concrete save an urging from his sibling to set the theoretical treaty up. What Louis sought to do in the meantime was send his special embassy across Europe with the aim of acquiring European support for an end to the Anglo-Dutch war that had just broken out since he didn't want it. When these two French diplomats arrived in London, one was the illegitimate brother of Henrietta Maria, Charles's mother, and Louis's aunt, and thus, by familial ties alone would have been welcome in Charles's court. They brought with them whole regiments of horse and dogs before long the hunt seemed a more important activity than the conducting of the war or bringing an end to it. While Charles may have wished to have simply pored over maps of the period and planned strategic advances against his Dutch foe he knew too well the unfortunate truth of Restoration Britain, that any talk of war must revert to talk of the economy. Or, to put it more bluntly, if Charles wanted the war to go ahead with gusto, he would have to appeal to Parliament for money. The incredibly underrated fact of the era was just how strapped for cash Britain was by this point. The extravagance, or, as time went on, the perceived extravagance of some members of Charles's court, did not help matters, and suspicions of Parliament were so high regarding the responsible use of the credit they approved, that even while war fever seemed to grip the nation in late 1664, Charles was forced to denounce the rumours that he intended to use the war funds for personal use as a vile jealousy. Antonia Fraser, in her benchmark study, King Charles II, noted plainly that, War did pose an acute financial problem to a crown already heavily embarrassed. It was true that the nationalistic optimism which pervaded the period in the manner of this Dutch war made light of such difficulties. Dutch prizes were expected to compensate for military costs, but so notoriously unstable were the king's finances by now that he found the greater difficulty in raising the actual cash needed in the first place. The lack of funds meant two critical things for the war's conduct. First, the war could not be a long one, since the available monies would simply not and could not support it. Second, in the absence of such funds, the belief that Dutch goods could be seized to somehow completely make up for the imbalance of money going out and in, motivated many hundreds not just into the privateer service, but also led to a series of actions against the Dutch which had no real goal other than to steal their priceless wares. Sometimes this would pay off and the British would come away with great bounties, but other times, as we'll see, the consequences of having its force so compelled by promises of plunder would be dire. As much as Charles had been led to believe that the Dutch would roll over as in the First War then, it was clear from the outset that this war would be nothing like the First, since, above all, London could not afford to see the war go on for two whole years, as it had the first time. What was hoped for in London and among Charles's court was that a great naval battle would so shatter the Dutch that the British would be able to lord the victory over them and gain an advantageous peace. Not only that, but in between the time it took to regroup after the victory and make that peace, it was hoped that British ships would be able to prey upon Dutch trading vessels, thereby making up the shortfalls of the state in rapid time. This of course was the ideal scenario. It would be wrong to paint the British as foolishly rushing into the venture without having any sense of reality about what they were about to enter into, but complacency fanned by the flames of past glories against the Dutch were undoubtedly rampant by the time war broke out. In comparison to Britain, the Dutch took to the war as though their survival depended on it, and would leverage in any potential benefit over Britain that they could find, while in Britain, initially at least, the war was viewed as a big adventure, albeit one which would bring Britain great bounties, and seal its reputation as a militaristic naval power once again. Certainly, for those naval officers on the ground in the weeks after the declaration of war, Britain seemed to be in a great position, militarily at least, to fight the Dutch. Britain possessed 160 ships, over half being at least first or second rate warships, manned by about 25,000 men and taking on board over 5,000 guns in total. The Dutch, by contrast, had about 130, so about 30 less than the British, and their ships were smaller, but with more compact rows of guns, less space on board, and with more room to manoeuvre. It was once again to be a clash of style. In the First War, the Dutch had been decimated, because they had used glorified merchant vessels to fight the English Man of Wars. By 1665, though, they had learned their lesson. Not only had the preceding years seen a massive rethinking of naval strategy and building, with hulking Dutch warships now resembling their British counterparts more than the old Dutch style, but the very focus of the Dutch on how they would fight the coming war had changed. The commercially minded Dutch regents of the early 1650s had relied so heavily on income derived from the trade fleets that they had forced the commanding admirals during the First War to fight the British at the same time as convoying the trade. This meant command was pulled in too many different directions, and that the continuation of the war depended upon monies gained from the successful arrival or departure of these fleets. These fleets obviously were dangerously vulnerable, but they were also a huge distraction. Johann de Witt accepted this and believed that to achieve victory in the next war, a radical change in Dutch strategy had to come about. The Dutch would seek battle, rather than seek to defend themselves or their trade fleets from British attack, and these fleets would stay in port or divide themselves into smaller groups to avoid detection, a kind of prelude to the convoy system that would be seen during the First and Second World Wars. Additionally, Dutch commerce would not be so dependent upon the income derived from the trade fleets, because a vast stockpile of goods, monies and materials had been accumulating in the Netherlands since the end of the last war. Finally, Witt had also ensured that naval production in the Netherlands skyrocketed in the years since the last war. This last aspect would come to have critical implications, for the longer the war dragged on, the better equipped the Dutch would be to replace their ships and continue the fight, in stark contrast to their foe, who would only have a few chances to strike before the money dried up. The following statistic drives the point home even further. For every one ship that Britain was producing by the end of 1666, the Dutch were constructing seven. This vast disparity in numbers meant that, even if he didn't realise it, Charles was fighting a losing game. The only way to defeat the unknown odds stacked against his country was to win, win so repeatedly and so convincingly that the determined Dutch would be forced to acknowledge defeat. But this would not be easy. In stark contrast, again, to the previous war, A great Dutch defeat did not mean despair, but a chance to learn and regroup before striking back. There would be no collapse on Dutch morale or strategy, in other words, as there had been before. The Dutch were in it for the long haul, and, in fact, they had planned for the war to last. All the plans in the world go up in smoke when you get punched in the mouth, though, as the saying goes and the Dutch were certainly walloped hard enough in the first real engagement of the war. In the Battle of Lowestoft on the 13th of June 1665, with the wind behind them and perfect order throughout, the British fleet, under the command of James, the Duke of York, achieved a clear victory against their Dutch foe in the space of a few hours. The Dutch lost a sixth of their force in ships, while nearly 5,000 men were lost to the enemy, killed or taken prisoner. What was more, the Dutch Admiral, Jacob von Wassenaer Obdam, went down with his ship after engaging a losing battle with the British flagship, the Royal Charles, where James himself commanded from. The British victory seemed total, and a repeat of the First War seemed guaranteed, with bonfires across the country flaring up in celebration and thanks given to God, to the navy and to the sea. Yet, as rosy as the picture seemed, the unsettling truth was that this was not the same Dutch defeat as had been enjoyed before. For starters, the Dutch had been far more aggressive in the battle itself, far less willing to stand by and let the British come to them. The recorded efforts of the Dutch to go straight for the British
0: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry.
1: flagship where it was known that James commanded from, was seen as an act of dishonour, since the enemy had willingly endangered a potential heir to the Stuart crown. Samuel Pepys, our man in London, was able to capture the prevailing rumour, later confirmed, that three prolific English courtiers had been massacred by a single Dutch cannonball, right in front of James. In his words, "...of their blood and brains flying in the Duke's face and the head of Mr. Richard Boyle striking down the Duke, as some say. The very visceral nature of war had perhaps been forgotten by those in Charles's court who had argued for the war in the first place. But this first engagement had reminded them, Charles' foremost among them, that war was a terrible thing in spite of a great victory. Though Pepys was able to claim that, a greater victory was never known in the world, Charles lamented the horror and gore of it all, especially when the fleet returned home and the wounded were unloaded, sporting their horrific injuries which only high-velocity shot could inflict. This taught Charles the importance of keeping his own brother out of danger, and he was removed from the commanding post, to be replaced by the combined command of General Monk of the Restoration Day fame, but also an admiral in the previous Dutch War, as well as Charles' cousin, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, in a support role. The victory had been great, but Charles accepted that it had not gone far enough. The Dutch fleet remained intact and would repair itself at home having escaped that night. Denied the total victory that was required to end the expense of the war, Charles nonetheless took solace from the fact that the first engagement boded well for British naval prowess. Perhaps if the next engagement took place earlier in the day, a greater, more total victory would be assured. The incredible story of the Dutch War in Britain is seen not just at sea, but closer to home. Just as Pepys was noting down the developments of the war and the great news of a victory, he was recording the beginnings of another event too. Plague. With our modern eyes, if we examine the state of London in the mid-1660s, it can seem unsurprising that a disease like the bubonic plague, which thrived in unsanitary, unclean and, well, dirty conditions, would be able to spread and infect its victims with such ease. The so-called Great Plague of London was the last major repeat in Britain of the same terror which had inflicted such a horrendous toll in the Black Death of the mid-14th century. While London was its main event, it also spread across the country and infected even the most apparently isolated of estates, In an era when the spread of disease was not understood, at least insofar as it was not yet connected to poor hygiene, it was in some sense inevitable that the greatly susceptible urban slums and tenements of the poor, as well as the dirty streets and lanes passed through on occasion by the rich, should prove such a terrifyingly effective breeding ground. Yet even if we accept that it made sense for a catastrophe to take place, the results were still unusually harrowing. The plague would reach its peak by mid-September 1665, and in the backdrop of desolation in the city, mass graves and citizen desperation, by that point point, seven thousand a week were dying of the disease in the capital alone. Even before its peak the plague had begun to impact British society. The Earl of Clarendon, as Britain's chief minister and adviser to the King, noted that as early as March 1665. The ancient men, who well remembered in what manner the last Great Plague first broke out and the progress it afterwards made, foretold a terrible summer, and many of them removed their families out of the city to country habitations. Even in these secluded miniature kingdoms of the country habitations that Clarendon describes, many were not safe. Perhaps the most famous account of the spreading plague recorded that a particular town isolated itself from all contact with the surrounding countryside, lighting regular bonfires, since the belief went that fire would burn the Malays away. Their walls were closed, their drawbridge was drawn up, and very few people were allowed in or out. The town's fate was sealed, though, when an innocent package of silk was unwrapped to dry by the fire, and the infected fleas leapt off the garment and scattered on the ground having attached themselves to the package weeks before. Charles himself acknowledged the difficulties of running the kingdom from day to day, making the decision in spring 1665 to prorogue Parliament until that September, saying, if it please God to extinguish or allay the fierceness of the plague, then Parliament would return. London thus emptied of people during the summer as citizens scrambled to flee from the plague. Impromptu courts, assemblies and councils met with great care, only for the short periods to discuss the most pressing of events, while Charles' entire court continued to relocate itself throughout the war in different areas. The terrible solution to the plague in an urban setting was the really awful sentence of simply locking a plague-infected house from the outside in the belief that such a behaviour would prevent the spread, when, in reality, the fleas were long gone by that stage. Pepys recounted one such story that went in line with this apparently heartless policy, designed to sacrifice a few to the disease for the sake of the good of all. He recalled, Among other stories, one was very passionate, me thought, of a complaint brought against a man in the town for taking a child from London, from an infected house. One alderman told us it was the child of a veritable citizen in Gracious Street, a saddler, who had buried all the rest of his children of the plague, and himself and wife were now being shut up in despair of escaping, and he did desire only to save the life of this little child, and so prevailed to have it received stark naked into the arms of a friend, who brought it, having put it into fresh clothes, to Greenwich, whereupon hearing the story we did agree it shall be permitted to be received and kept in the town." The sheer horror of what had befallen Britain seemed to suggest not merely disaster but signs of apocalyptic disfavour towards Charles's reign. To the Fifth Monarchist's Creed, for example, who believed that in 1666 Jesus would return to earth and the Second Coming would represent the end of the world, this plague was seen as vindication of their beliefs and a sign that more was to come. To other citizens of the realm, the ongoing war seemed distant. And any potential foreign successes merely a distraction in such a world of suffering. Antonia Fraser notes that the plague's worsening went hand in hand with the definite end of the honeymoon period of Charles' reign, with some critics even insisting that the plague was judgment for the wanton excesses, the flagrant overspending, and immoral conduct of the courtiers that Charles surrounded himself with. If nothing else, The plague at least brought into vogue a now common custom, that of directing a concerned bless you towards those that sneezed, since a sneeze was believed to be the first signs of infection, so the first sign that you had caught, the dreaded plague. As horrendous as affairs at home were, Charles maintained that the war must be pursued but he had a hard time persuading the now-sceptical Parliament in late September 1665 of the necessity of voting through further funds. The initial war grant, which national positivity and war fever had produced, had virtually run dry by this point, and MPs insisted that there should be more to show for the previously allocated monies than what Britain now had. Armed with the evidence of news of the court debaucheries and having witnessed with their own eyes how luxuriously clothed and Catered for, Charles's court had been over the previous months, many demanded proof that the money had in fact gone to the furthering of the war and hadn't been used to simply line Charles's pockets. It is at this point that Charles's Privy Council, his circle of intimates and courtiers that were tasked with the day to day running of the realm and essentially formed a predecessor to the later cabinet ministries, begins to splinter into different factions. In the past, historians pointed to the conveniently entitled CABAL, an acronym made up of the first letter of the names of the most significant courtiers during the period, as an early example of court intrigues running the state. But later studies have since pointed out that the CABAL was not an actual device used in Charles's era, nor did its members really get on. In particular, though I won't list the five members, since we haven't met them all yet and I don't want to bombard you with names, Two factions within it were led by the Duke of Buckingham on the one hand, and the Earl of Arlington on the other. The Earl of Clarendon was in fact not a part of the cabal, and its very existence, official in Charles's era or not, represented a shift in fortunes away from that veteran minister. As his conflicting ministers persuaded MPs to grant more funds for the war, in late summer 1665 the quest for booty had landed British diplomacy in a state of severe danger. After weeks of tracking a sequence of Dutch trading vessels, it was learned that many of them had taken refuge in the Norwegian port town of Bergen. Norway was under the suzerainty of Denmark, and the Danish king Frederick III had spent the last few years as a product of Charles's diplomatic plans, before French pressure had forced him to take a step back and revert to his old defensive alliance with the Dutch, just as the Anglo-Dutch war was breaking out. The diplomatic complications and sensitivities of this situation, on the ground, were overawed by the British Admiral at the scene who had taken his ships to Bergen, a Captain Teddyman, whose crew agitated for opportunities to seize the priceless cargoes of the Dutch trade vessels as they lay in port. After a tense standoff, the British entered the harbour on the 2nd of August 1665, but the Dutch had been waiting. Having set up a battery on a hill overlooking the harbour and having unloaded their goods into the port's warehouses for safekeeping, the Dutch went on the defensive and prepared for a British assault. Shortly after entering the harbour, Teddyman's vessel was seen to fire upon the town, killing many civilians in the process. The Dutch defended themselves, their smaller merchant guns made up for by the choke point that the harbour presented but the damage was still quite total on the unprepared Norwegian houses and wooden constructs, with fires gutting numerous dwellings and over 200 citizens dying, with notable British losses besides when the order was finally given to withdraw. Through this incident, Charles almost forced Frederick firmly into the arms of the Dutch, after the Danish king had stood somewhat on the fence for some time. In the words of Jenny Oglo, As the ill-thought-out attack showed, the itch for honour was intensified by the hope of booty. Yet it wasn't merely Frederick III of Denmark that had been reacting to the events of the war thus far. Upon learning of the British victory at the Battle of Lowestoft in June, Louis XIV had been mounting a diplomatic campaign of pressure against the rest of Europe, in the hope that by building such a coalition, Charles would be persuaded for the need for peace. More cynically though, it is worth mentioning the possibility that Louis didn't particularly want to intervene against his cousin, since this would complicate the plans he had for the Spanish Netherlands in the future. Louis's fear of the war's continuation came from his and his ministers' underestimation of Dutch power, since he had got the impression, from his ambassadors, that the battle was far more decisive than it actually was, and that Britain now retained mastery of the seas. This view is echoed by Henry Schoolcraft in his article "England and Denmark, 1660 to 67," in which he writes: "The English victory off Lowestoft in June, which had such a decisive effect on the foreign policy of Frederick III, had scarcely less effect on that of Louis XIV. It placed England temporarily, at least, in a commanding position on the sea, and the King of France did not desire that this position should become permanent." Technically speaking, Britain did possess naval superiority, but only for the few weeks it took to refit and repair the Dutch ships and send them back to the oceans, a practice which Charles would have been all too aware of his inability to replicate. The problem for the strange Danish pawn caught in the middle of the Anglo-Dutch war was the fact that King Frederick had been negotiating with the British representatives only a few days before word came out about the British attack at Bergen. What had he been negotiating? A treaty to hand over any Dutch vessels that resided in his ports, including Bergen, and share their goods with the British. This would have been a shocking affront to the Danish-Dutch defensive alliance that had been agreed, and would have placed Denmark squarely in the anti-Dutch camp. Such an awkward fact of diplomacy at the time reflected Frederick's opportunism, since only a few months before he had been leaning heavily towards France and away from the British camp. The Battle of Lowestoft had changed that though, and much like with Louis, this first proper engagement of the war persuaded him that British victory was at hand. Was Frederick right? Was the Dutch war effort doomed? As positive and determined as Johan de Witt had been, it seemed as though the irresistible naval power of the British remained just as sure as it had been in the previous war, at least to foreign observers. De Witt appreciated, though, that the Republic was down but not out. What he needed next was a plan to overcome the designs of Britain and persuade foreign powers, his ally Louis XIV included, that the Dutch were as militarily capable as they were economically capable. Unfortunately for Johan De Witt, though, As we'll see in the next episode, the Dutch Republic faced domestic enemies which were just as dangerous, if not more so, than the foreign dangers posed by Charles II's kingdom.